Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This is part one of our Market Outlook review and forecast for 2023. This week we are going to be looking at what's happened through 22, and more importantly, where we see some of the key risks for markets going forward. Part two, the podcast that will follow next week, will specifically get into the trading tactics and strategies that we're using to exploit this. Hope you enjoy the show. As always, take plenty of notes, but most importantly, make sure you take plenty of action. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, joined by my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Laurential. Thank you for having me on the show, Mr. Baxter, and always being forward-thinking and young and hungry. What I want to get today is your 2023 economic outlook. It's a very big question. I know we've been briefing our clients on this a hell of a lot leading into this Christmas period, but I want to hear it straight from the horse's mouth, my friend. Look, it's uh, it's a mammoth one, isn't it? And I guess, you know, as a preface for this, I think one of the biggest pieces of advice I'd give anyone when it comes to trading and investing is that, you know, a lot of people are under the misnomer that trading is about guessing what's going to happen. I think success in markets isn't about trying to predict or forecast or guess what's going to happen. It's about responding to what's happening. It gives you a high level of certainty and uh, enables you to make, I think, better quality decisions. But I think having an outlook and a view is a crucial starting point to any kind of investment strategy. Uh, whatever it is that you do, you've got to have a view on what's going on. And, and I guess the level of validity to that view by looking at the statistics, but also looking at the window at what's actually going on anecdotally. Absolutely. And we know that your bread and butter is fundamental analysis, mm. being a news addict, and that's certainly rubbing off on me. So probably a good place to start if we just jump into this AB for 2023. One category would have to be inflation and interest rates. Where do you see those? Look, I think going into 23, uh, and first let's just take a look in the rearview mirror at 2022. I mean, each year that goes by, you kind of go, okay, that was an interesting one. And that's kind of what's given me the fuel to be in markets, I think, for you know 30 plus years now, uh, because each year is as unique as the next. I don't think you're going to see another year like we had last year. It's weird. Um, yeah, it's it's f f for so many reasons. I think if you look back since the start of history, it's the first time ever, for example, that you've had both equities and bonds fall in value by more than 10%. Never happened in a single year previously since records started. So it's definitely an outlier. And one, I think, of the themes through the year, very obviously, is inflation. We, you know, we've gone from an environment where inflation has been largely under control um, and, and within most central banks' range of expectations. And this year, it's just gone through the roof. And I guess it's a legacy from the massive government stimulation that we saw you know, around the world through the pandemic. And that you know, additional cash that's been poured into markets and into economies has come home to roost now with rampant inflation, which is at a 40-year high. You think about some of the figures we've seen, you know, nearly 10% in the US, over 10% in the UK, and mm. we're heading he heading towards 8% according to the RBA governor in the in the near term. It's pretty crazy, right? It is. Uh, and, and again, you know, it's the first time for 40 years that you've seen really anything like this. And and so for many people, many investors and, and participants in markets and, and, and a large tract of society, they've never seen it and don't really know that inflation is, is not just simply an economics term. It's something that has genuine fangs. And you know, we've talked about this multiple times over the last year or so of you know the rising cost of living, inflation to all intents and purposes, and we can we can look at some of the drivers in there uh, in just a few moments. But 
it's a very real pain for people filling up your car with gas, uh, you know, filling the grocery trolley with food, um, paying for your electricity and energy bills, uh, paying for your private health care, whatever it may be, has all got you know significantly more expensive flying, uh, which you're about to do, and uh, as we've been doing plenty of over the last uh, last few weeks, is is another one that's really surged. Um, and, and inflation comes around in two areas. There are two types: there's cost push and there's demand pull. Um, looking at those separately because they're both quite different. Um, cost push is where the cost of producing something. So let's say you're in manufacturing, so your energy costs are higher, fuel costs are higher, labor costs are higher, the raw material input costs are higher. You then pass that price rise onto the consumer, pushing up in a price, that's cost push. Gotcha. Demand pull is where there's just this thirst for goods and services that are being sucked out of the economy and it becomes an auction system, if you will. A very good example of that would be the car market right now where there's still a wait list because of disruptions to the supply chain. And so, you know, it's it's very, very hard to negotiate on buying a car. Uh, you, you're competing with somebody else for a fairly finite amount of resource right now. So that's an example of demand pull. So they're quite different things. But you're right, we've seen inflation now head up into double digit territory in the UK and not off it uh, for us in the US and and it is a massive massive problem so as central banks have come out and the major tool that's used um, on a headline basis to try and tackle inflation is of course interest rates and and, and that's had a, a massive impact um, obviously on mortgage servicing for people um, and it's really starting to bite and show show its uh, show its teeth now so if we had to look look forward, AB, mm. into 2023, let's split them up, say Aussie and US. Mm. What are your inflation expectations for each market respectively? Yeah, I don't think we're tapped out here. And I think there's an enormous distinction between, you know, the US and Australia, and that if we look at the central banks, and we've talked about this plenty of times, you know, last year, um, you know, I think, you know, the way that Jerome Powell, the chair of the Fed, has, has handled his obligation as chair of the central bank, has been very transparent with markets and, and given really strong um, qualitative backing up of the decision making that they've made. So, you know, he comes up, we're going to take an aggressive stance uh, with interest rates. That means 0.75. Uh, we're starting to see new data, which is prompting us to soften our view, means 0.5 uh, in the current terms. And so markets are able to respond very well. And it's important for people to acknowledge that yeah, markets hate uncertainty. They love that transparency of communication. So from a US perspective, I think, you know, going into the early part of this year, um, we're probably going to see a significant slowdown in those interest rate rises. I think there's possibly one or two left in the tank um, as we really do make sure that the the sort of embers of the flames of inflation are properly stamped out. So maybe a, a February, maybe 50 basis point rate hike and then maybe something in March? Yeah, look, on the back of December's, I think another 50 in 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 February, no meeting in January, of course, um, and then uh, on the back of that, I think we'll start to see that decline quite aggressively, um, based on, of course, the data points. If we see um, CPI rear its head again, then he, I don't think there's any question that they'll ramp it back up to 0.75 again as is needed. Uh, but if we do see that inflation rate start to slow down, I don't think they're going to take their foot off the gas. I think they'll still continue to tighten things, but the, the aggression level of tightening will, will wane away to the point where I think we'll see peak interest rates you know, before, before the middle of the year, and we'll start to see them stabilise in the back end of the year, I suspect, in the US. Over here what about all, here? Yeah, because yeah. we've been a bit all over the shop, right? We had 25 basis points, mm. and we had 50, now we're back to 25, even though our expectations on inflation are higher. Yeah, look, I mean, 
our central bank have done an appalling job, um, led by the the chief incompetent, um, sorry, uh, the, the 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 chair of it, <laughs> being Dr. Philip Lowe. Um, my pet uh, last year was of course bagging him, um, and I don't think that's really changed. Their, their ability to communicate their intention to markets has been really opaque instead of really clear, uh, and for whatever reason, who knows? Because the clearer it is, the more structurally sound and um, orderly markets can behave, which is also part of their mandate, of course. So I think you know, they're grasping at straws at the moment. They, they've got this very, very fine balance to try and tread um, between curbing inflation and sending us into a recession. Um, I don't think the US is going to go into a recession. I think it's going to be barely any growth. So it's a semantic point, whether it's 0.2% you know, growth or a recession, it's going to feel the same. It's going to be slower. Um, here in Australia, I think there is a far higher probability of us going into recession, principally on the back of a weaker property market, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, but I don't think we're done with rate tightening here. I think there's a fair way to go. Uh, and it's quite unpalatable every time they have to make an announcement that they're moving rates up, that they've failed on their promise to hold them steady until 2024. And that's why I think they've just been a bit you know, touchy-feely about how they've gone about doing it. And that's not provided a level of confidence in markets. Markets respond to confidence and clarity. And that's something that's very, very sadly lacking from the RBA. So I think we're in for you know, at least two or three more rate rises, albeit some of them could be smaller at the, the, the sort of lower end going into um, going into next year or this year, should I say. Uh, and again, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see them sort of peak out around mid-year. So kind of fleshing that out just a little bit more, AB. Mm. Interesting point you made earlier today, and we'll kick in the can around, is the difference between homeowners for the most part in the US versus Australia. Mm. So most people, correct me if I'm wrong, in the US are on 30-year fixed mortgages locked in at a pretty low rate. Yep. Here in Australia, if you're on a variable rate, you've been cleaned up. I look at my investment property, it's probably an extra two grand a month, I reckon, just in interest repayments that mm. it's costing me. So Mere pennies for a man of your means. <laughs> Learned well from you, right? Um, so very different situations. On that basis, do you think that the Aussie property market will struggle a lot more than that of the US? Oh, very much so. I mean, if we if we dive specifically into property now, um, you're right. That the biggest lesson I think the US took out of the GFC, which ultimately you know kind of started there, um, and 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 was a major major drag in Australia. I think many people really failed to grasp the significance of the GFC because the Australian economy didn't really suffer. Uh, we had a mining boom simultaneously. Uh, you know, our relationship with China at the time pulled us through. And so really, whilst things were a little bit gnarly for a reasonably short period of time, and I don't wish to you know, demean the significance of the GFC, but the Aussie economy fared very well because of that relationship with, with the miners, with China and iron ore. In the US, they didn't have that. And when you get a big setback, I think it prompts you, it's kind of punch on the nose, you taste your own blood, and it prompts you to sort of really think about what actions you've been taking. And in the US, the mortgage industry was shocking up until that point in time with all of the various toxic loans that have been put together um, by various lenders over that good time uh, economic environment. And the big lesson I think the US took was that you, know, you need to decrease that risk. So you've had a significantly higher standard of lending. Uh, you've also, um, given how strong the US property market has been, most investors or, or owners there for that matter have got quite a chunk of equity in a property now. And then thirdly, the big significant point as you raise is that most people on a 30-year fix. So if you fixed your mortgage at 2% or 3% for 30 years. Happy days. It doesn't matter what happens with interest rates, your monthly mortgage repayments are stable. And that's a, a huge takeaway point from the GFC. And so what we're seeing there, I think there's going to be a slowdown in housing activity. 
And I think there will be some weakness in property prices insofar as you're not getting people trading in the property market now, because if you move from one to another, you've got to refinance and you've gone from a 30-year fixed at two and a bit to a 30-year fixed at seven and a bit is is, is, a, is a material consideration in terms of moving. So you go, look, you know, we could probably stick here for a little bit longer, let things settle down and, and then consider things next year. So that turnover in activity um, is a little bit softer and by its very nature, because you don't have buyers chasing the next property, um, you get a bit more of an anemic, if not slightly weaker market. So, you know, you might see a little bit of a drop five, 6% in, in, in prices there, but nothing to the four selling levels that we saw post GFC. Now, the other impact of that is on new home starts, new building, because activity is lower, that's an area that's suffered this year and I think will continue to, as it has to grapple with the uncertainty as we do of you know higher labor costs, higher material prices, and, and, and much higher cost of funding. And so those housing start statistics that we've seen, albeit you know November was a bit of an aberration, that number was a bit higher than people were expecting, um, is likely to show a weaker property market from a new house start. But I think residential property by and large is is going to hold up quite strong there. Here in Australia, to give a bit of a contrast, that's a really different story. Uh, and, and there are so many borrowers out there and I really feel for them, given the misleading promise that, they, that they've based their borrowing decisions on in some cases, um, where that pain of higher interest rates is really starting to bite. And I think we're going to see a more significant structural decline in property prices uh, in Australia on the back of that. Um, you know, we've got a very um, skewed market where investors have, have been able to borrow at very low rates and, and, and acquire a lot of investment property, which impacts on the rental market, also impacts on the ability of first home buyers to get in there. And again, the regulator, uh, be that the RBA or APRA, um, have kind of been asleep at the wheel in terms of the structural reforms needed in the Australian property market to shore it up. And I, I don't want to say this as someone that's also, you know, pretty heavily invested in property, um, but this might be our taste of what we missed during the GFC of that weakness. Um, you know, we had a fair lick down in the property market here. We might be revisiting, you know, 20, 20 or so percent from highs would be a reasonable expectation, which is a touch more than what some of the economists have talked about. But, you know, those economists weren't also forecasting in interest rate rises that we've seen. And as you mentioned, if it's costing you a couple of grand more a month to service your mortgage, you've you've really got nothing more to show for it. And you do have to find that couple of thousand dollars a month from somewhere. So that means other forms of spending has to slow down and that will have a knock-on effect, of course, on the economy. Yeah, it, it's a tough one, uh, mm -hmm. which you know could obviously represent an opportunity next year as well if you do see that play out, which we might cover in a part two, by the mm -hmm. way. I'm sure we can. <laughs> so jumping in more into the consumer now, AB, mm -hmm. what do you expect in the jobs market for both US and Aussie? I think a slowdown uh, in the jobs market is likely. I mean, we've seen a really rampant labor market. Um, you know, we've seen big wage pressure and it's, it's really hard to sit here uh, and say this, but it's something that needs to be said, and that's that pay rises aren't the answer. Because if you get a 6 or 7% pay rise, all that does is add another 6 or 7% into the spending pot, which is driving prices higher, demand pull inflation once again. And so trying to chase inflation with higher pay awards um, is a strategy um, that was, I guess, you know, demonstrably failed during the 1970s in the UK. Uh, and, and, and we'll note it fail again here. You can't keep up with inflation with pay rises. It's as simple as that. And, 
And I think, you know, also the labour reforms that we're seeing in Australia under the Albanese government, it's just exactly the wrong policy at exactly the wrong time for all the wrong reasons. Um, you should, and, and, and yet the, the, um, the Treasurer has got the audacity to say companies need to return to making profit. But if you're getting bashed around the head with higher labour co costs, collective bargaining, dealing with unions and everything else that goes alongside it, it's pretty hard to turn a dollar as a business because, you know, during the good times, everyone wants to participate in the upside. And when times are tough, they want to be looked after first. And that comes at the expense of the overall profitability of the business. Which we covered in a, in a mm. podcast, Two yeah, Small so, Business Strain. So, so I, I, I think, you know, to that point, I think we're going to see a weakening employment market in the US. Obviously, you've got you know a ready supply of illegal labor hopping over the fence or lack of fence every five minutes at the moment too. So there's always a pool of you know, cheap labor in the US with the way that the, the, that southern border is policed right now. And, and that will go some way towards sort of softening um, some of the some of the pressure in the labor market. And I think as, as, as we move into a slower economy, I think you'll also start to see, as we've already seen in the tech sector, a lot of jobs being shared. Uh, and I, I think we can quite readily expect to see exactly the same thing happening here in Australia too. All right. Well, that's it's 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 a bit of a, a dire outlook when you think about it, and uh, we hate being the prophets of doom. But these are just the hard facts mm. based on data. What about the currency market? AB US dollar's been pretty strong this year. Look, it has US dollars. Um, you know, put on about ten percent against most of the majors. Probably a touch more than that. Twenty percent actually against most of the majors. Twenty percent yeah. at its highs, at least. Yeah. Um, over most of the majors, and and part of that is because of the aggressive nature that the US have raised interest rates, higher interest rates, stronger currency. Um, pretty linear relationship. Um, but now that the US is sort of reaching that peak or very close to its peak in terms of interest rates, we're likely to see other countries around the world probably catch up a little bit um, in terms of, you know, if you take sterling uh, or cable, dollar sterling as it's known. Um, uh, as an example, you know, the UK government through, you know, the Liz Trust mini budget, you know, is, is, is shot itself in the foot. But as they move interest rates higher in an effort to rein in their rampant inflation, you know, the pound has to gain some strength, which it will against the US dollar. And a strong US dollar has been quite good for America insofar as it's prevented them importing inflation from other higher inflation environments. Um, but I think you're going to start to see some catch-up value. And we'll get onto this, I think, when we talk about opportunity later on. Yeah, I think the Aussie dollar um, is likely to be a beneficiary in that relationship, which, um, again, you know, if you look at sort of 66 against the US, um, yeah, that's, that's a pretty punchy uh, number when it was 76 not that long ago. So it makes it pretty expensive to, uh, to, to, to do much over there. Um, so, yeah, I think the US is likely to tap out a little bit and we're going to see um, some of the others, uh, other countries that have got tightening interest rates certainly catch up and, and enjoy a little bit more strength in their currency. There's a lot to digest there. And if I, if I sort of recap what we've spoken about mm. just before we move on, there's obviously, you know, potentially weaker jobs market, property market, inflation coming down lower mm. in the US in particular. What if we tie all of this in, AB, what does this mean for businesses in the stock market? Because we do have an earnings season coming up in January, mm. uh, early Feb. What do you think we could see there? Look, I think earnings um, are in for a pretty tough time. I, I think if I had a criticism of our performance last year, I think our view has been right, but and, and there's no ego in this. I think our view was right, but our timing was out by maybe a quarter or so in terms of we were expecting to see the pain come in in the earnings. And, and, and in all fairness, that's testimony to how strong so, so many of these US companies have been and the resilience that they've really demonstrated, that they've weathered the storm of all of this you know, nonsense that's been going on with, be it, you know, supply chain disruptions or, you know, inflation and labour shortages and all of that. And they've still been able to deliver, in, in some cases, just un incredible earnings. But I think that that record is coming to its end. Um, you know, and there are three factors um, within there. I think a slowing consumer 
um, has to happen. And yet, again, if you look at the juxtaposition or the dichotomy of, uh, of economic data, we, we've had a slowing consumer and consumer sentiment in the US, yet we had absolutely record Black Friday, Cyber Monday sales over the Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, and I think, you know, on digesting that, and I haven't, you know, we haven't obviously seen the retail sales figures for Christmas come through yet, but a lot of that was Christmas shopping that's brought forward because it was a 20, 25% discount as opposed to this surge in spending. And, and whilst when you discount, you get market share, the margin on that is much, much less. So your profit margin is a lot thinner. And I think that notion of discounting and, and, and slower consumer spending or will affect earnings. I think also, you know, several of the big retailers have been finding themselves in an overstock position, Walmart being probably the best example where the inventory is building up and it costs billions. It's not like they've got a couple of extra pallets of stuff. I mean, it's an enormous company and there's billions of dollars of revenue tied up in inventory. Um, it's got to be stored. And if it can't be sold quickly and turned over, um, needs to be discounted, which again, sort of crimps on margin. So I think overstocking is going to be a big issue for a lot of retailers. And, and um, I think um, yeah, they're probably two of the the major the, the major issues. So that weaker consumer overstocking uh, would certainly be uh, where I see some of the challenges come. And then obviously there are costs as well in terms of higher interest rates, higher energy prices, higher wages, um, all of those you know higher rents in some instances. You know that, that that's all got to come from somewhere, and I think that's gonna that's gonna weigh very very heavily in terms of the earnings season, which starts you know, mid this month. So earnings downgrades and poor guidance we'd be expecting from most companies, particularly in the retail space? Yeah, I think, you know, certainly disappointing earnings and I think a more realistic set of guidance this year than last where everyone was more optimistic going, no, no, things are good. I think the reality of a slower economy slash recession, um, prudent prudent corporate management is going to have you coming out of the confession with going, it's pretty tough out there, cut us some slack here, out, looks a lot softer, um, don't expect big things from us this year. And then if you're able to surprise at the upside, the reward is obviously there versus, um, you know, the fatal mistake of keeping quiet and then surprising to the downside and seeing your stock price absolutely pummeled. Yeah, it's a tough one. And there's a lot of variables out there. I, I do. And I think that's arguably the biggest weakness or the biggest risk to markets is, is that earnings downgrade. If we start to see that on a broad basis, I mean, you know, you expect to see it in retail, but when you start to see it on a broader basis in the economy, um, that's that's a major, major issue for markets. What about China in their ABA? I forgot to ask it, it as, a, as a topic worth discussing for next year. What do you think? Potential relaxation of their, of their rules? Well, I think the difficulty for China is that, you know, the, the, the prospect of, you know, COVID zero is, is it's just an unrealistic expectation. And so, you know, from a Eastern culture perspective, and I'm not well versed in this, but of what I know, and, and I'm sure, you know, listeners going to correct me if I'm wrong here, um, you know, saving face is an enormously important attribute in in eastern culture uh, and the chinese government's requirement to show a strong decisive uh, approach to policy is key and so to come out and have a zero covid policy they go actually we're not going to do that anymore is is exactly what needs to happen but in order for it to happen requires a, a bit of a, a 180 in terms of what's been you know, communicated to the population. And that loss of face is a huge one for the government to have to deal with. So whilst they know it's probably the right thing to do, psychologically and politically, um, it's it's a pretty hard one to go, yeah, look, we're doing this now instead and trying to save face. So I think, you know, relaxation of COVID policy there, as it happens, and I think it will happen, 
um, is 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 a wild card for markets insofar as if China reopens, that's good for everybody because we get back to business as usual. Uh, it takes a lot of pressure off of the US to, to be the shining beacon in the commercial world. Um, also, um, think, you know, from Chinese uh, China's economy's perspective, a, a relaxation. If you've got, you know, 10 million people that have been locked in an apartment for two months and now allowed out and about, it's not going to make a lot of difference towards goods and, and other countries around the world that export to China, but I think it's going to have a material impact on Chinese service companies, food retailers, Lucky and Coffee, there's one for you. Um, you know, Plus from the past? Yeah, there we go, I haven't spoken that one for a while, but those, those sorts of businesses that are really focused on services as people want to go out for dinner and consume things and do things they haven't been able to do for the last few months. So in that respect, I think that'll give you know the Chinese economy a little bit of a kick along. Um, you know, at the same time, I mean, there's a flip side to to what's going on in China, and, and that's the pressure it's put on many manufacturers that are based there and the, the vulnerabilities of frailties of their supply chain where you know if you look at you know Foxconn with Apple's production for example you know 70% uh, of Apple's iPhones come from there and they haven't been able to produce them on time and it affects supply which affects revenue which then affects profitability and earnings so it's a major problem and I think you know part and parcel of all this is likely to be that continued shift uh, outside of China uh, and a look outside of China, if you will, from Western companies for manufacturing bases. Maybe I think we've pretty much covered all bases, is all bases there, excuse me. Any other variables that you'd like to mention or has that pretty much hit the nail on the head? Look, there are always going to be more. Um, they're probably the, the, the big ones for people to consider in their investment outlook. Um, you know, if we see the world sliding into um, a slower economic growth, uh, which is going to be quite divergent, I think, you know, between the East and the West, um, there are going to be some major winners in there and there are going to be some companies and sectors that really struggle. And I guess we'll talk to what's on our hit list for success versus what's on the hit list for struggling uh, as we get into, you know, our recommendations and, and, and preferred sort of plays for, the, for this year. Well, let, let's do that. Let's, as we said, we're going to do two-part series. So this is our, our outlook as such. Mm. When we come back next week, let's do some uh, some strategy on this. Look, happy to do that. And I think, you know, it, it, it's been one for the books. We always say, oh, you know, that's a, a, an incredible year to have in the rearview mirror. But just with the breadth, depth and magnitude, you know, we haven't even talked about a war in the Ukraine, for example, which... Yeah, is a major factor, and we haven't talked about the impact that could have on energy prices and grain prices, which it has. That's just another thing that we've seen this year, and it's almost bled into the background, horrific as it is, reflecting, as I say, the depth and breadth and magnitude of news flow that we've had to contend with in markets this year. So it's definitely uh, one that's uh, that I'm pretty happy to see in the rearview mirror and uh, rubbing my hands with anticipation at what we're going to do this year. And I guess that's what we'll speak to in our next podcast. All right. Well, there's our outlook, AB. I'm going to stop you there, and uh, we'll resume next week for the strategy on all of this. Thank you very much. Look forward to chatting there. There you go, guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating and make sure you share this podcast with anyone you may know that would benefit from the content that we've just described.